The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight, we're going to begin a new phase of our study in systematic theology, specifically the doctrine of God. And we're going to talk about everything that the Bible says about God tonight. There you go. I was waiting for that. I wasn't sure. Um, but no, really, um, we've, we've laid a good foundation in um, talking about uh, the doctrine of Scripture uh, on the basis of that solid rock, that unshakable uh, foundation, we're going to be able to be making all kinds of statements about God. And that's a very, very important thing. So you can see the methodology. You can see the approach that we're taking. We've started by establishing the fact that we have in the Scriptures a sure and certain word from God. And on the basis of that, we're going to be learning about God. Now, I've given you in your outline, um, on the first two pages, or first page for you uh, front and back, just a kind of a summary or a kind of a like a bird's eye view or a helicopter flyover of what Wayne Grudem says about the doctrine of God. Breaks it into 11 chapters. All right. I've also given you what some of the other systematic theologies say about it. What are, the, what are some of the topics that you would go into if you're going to study uh, the doctrine of God? Do you see that right on the front? Okay, he breaks it into 11 chapters. He starts with the topic of the existence of God and asks the question, how can we know that God exists? He also talks about the knowability of God. Can we really know God? And how much of God can we know? Those two are the things we're going to talk about tonight. We're only going to get through those two chapters. After that comes a study on the character of God, what they call incommunicable attributes. Uh, and the question he asks is, how is God different from us? First of all, attributes attributes are descriptives, phrases, or adjectives, descriptors, that you use about God. What would an attribute of God be? Holiness, for example. Uh, his truthfulness. What are some other attributes of God? Descriptive phrases. His omniscience. Omnipotence. And the other omni? Omnipresence. Thank you. All right, well, let's, uh, let's stop for a minute, okay? Basically, the attributes are divided into two categories by systematic, systematic theologians. There's incommunicable attributes and there's communicable attributes. When you think of, for example, a communicable disease, I hate to go there, but that's how we usually use the word more than any other normal way. Thank you so much, Jack. Uh, what is a communicable disease? You can catch it, right? So, therefore, by that... Uh, by that, also another connection would be the word communication, for example. What is communication? One person's communicating to another. What is he doing? Exchanging, or you could say imparting knowledge. So we're imparting something, right? Well, therefore, by that knowledge, what would a communicable attribute be? That's right, one you can catch, right? Or, or one you can, it's an attribute that God could impart to his created beings. All right, what about holiness? That was the first thing mentioned. Is that communicable or incommunicable? It's communicable because God commands us to be holy and therefore holiness can be imparted, right? Be holy because I am holy, it says in Leviticus and in other places. Okay, uh, what about God's goodness? Communicable or incommunicable? Communicable. What about his truthfulness? Okay, very, very good. Um, what about his omnipotence? That's incommunicable. Specifically because of the word, the, the phrase omni or the prefix omni. We have a certain level of power. All right? In Psalm 8, it says, for example, that God has set us above his created beings. He's put all things under our power. That means things, you know, here on earth. We are rulers over the things that he's made. So he has given us or delegated to us a certain level of power. But he has not and cannot delegate omnipotence. He can't give it to us because he is omnipotent. It shouldn't it cause you to stumble when we say cannot because he cannot yield the position of power to us that he himself holds. Then he would stop being God, you see. And so omnipotence is his alone. How about omnipresence? 
it's, it's his alone. It's incommunicable. What are some other incommunicable attributes? We're not studying that tonight, but just to expand your thinking. What would be some things that are true of God that cannot and never will be true of us? His foreknowledge, okay? The fact that God knows things before they happen. Okay? Other things? His perfection. It's interesting. Be perfect. Yeah. Well... In this world, we will not achieve that. That is true. But of course, in heaven, we will be morally perfect because we will see him as he is. We will be like him if we will see him as he is. That's a good one. Uh, Self-existence is one. Remember what God said to Moses. I am is my name. I am that I am. Well, it's kind of hard to figure that out. That's a very, very basic phrase. I am. It's one of the first things that we learn when we learn language. What is God saying when he says, I am that I am? What does that mean? He's eternal. He is self-existent. What does it mean to be self-existent? He has no creator. And so, and we're going to study tonight some of the arguments for the existence of God, some of the logical proofs for the existence of God. And we say that all things must have a creator, right? So therefore, there must be a God. It's a cosmological argument. Everything must have a cause, and so, therefore, there must be a God. Well, the problem with that is they say, well, why do you speak of the universe that way? Perhaps the universe, we say of God, he has no creator, right? So why not just ascribe that to the universe and say the universe has no creator? And we're not going to get into that right now, but the, point, the fact of the matter is a child will ask, you know, who made these things? You know, God did. Well, who made God? Isn't that the very next question a child asks? And the answer is that God does not need to be made. He always has been. He always will be. He is the I am. And so Jesus can break grammar but teach theology in saying, before Abraham was born, what? I am. Okay? It breaks grammar, but it's excellent theology. Because he always am, if I can say that way. He's always, he always exists. He always has. And so he is self-existent. There is nothing else in the universe that's self-existent. Nothing else. Father, Son, and Spirit, the only self-existent. Everything else is created. All things. All right. Self-existence. Communicable attributes. Uh, we talk about how God is like us in his being and his mental and moral attributes and how God is like us in attributes of will and in attributes that summarize his excellence. We're going to talk about that. I think it is an absolutely wonderful thing to get onto one piece of paper uh, all the attributes of God that you can think of, both incommunicable and communicable, and just look at them with some of their scriptural support and worship God. It's an incredible thing to do. Our God is an amazing being. He's incredible. Here's one incommunicable attribute, God's immensity. God says, do I not fill heaven and earth? Right over here there's something. Do I not fill heaven and earth? That's incredible. God is immense. How immense is heaven and earth? Well, you cannot measure the universe. It's just too big. And so there's the immensity of God. God is immense. That's a little bit scary, isn't it? My wife and I talk about it. She said, don't talk like that. It makes me feel weird. You know, it's, it's too big. It's all too big. And God is that big. And it says that he marks off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. Five, you know. It's just the immensity of God. The immensity of God. He's immense. So these are the things we're going to talk about later. Okay, but that's coming up. Then God in three persons. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. How can God be three persons and yet one God? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about creation. Why, how, and when did God create the universe? Boy, we could spend, really, we could do a whole Acts seminar on creation. We really could. Because of all the attacks that there have been on the doctrine of creation. Many, many attacks. God's providence. If God controls all, thi all things, how can our actions have real meaning? What are the decrees of God? A, a deep, deep study. You know, on God's sovereignty, his foreknowledge, his powers, predestination, all of these things that are biblical topics. We're going to talk about that. Miracles. What are miracles? And can they happen today? What are they? Number nine, prayer. Why does God want us to pray? How can we pray effectively? Prayer is an incredible mystery, isn't it? It really is an amazing mystery. Does prayer change things the way bumper stickers say? Prayer changes things. Does it? Uh, you know, and, and if so, how does that work? How does our will and God's mix together? I mean, it's a mystery, isn't it? 
but we're going to talk about that. Angels and then Satan and demons. All right, that's what Grudem does with the doctrine of God, and that's about where we're going. I think he gives us a good skeletal structure, and we're going to be adding some other things. But but just for our edification, let's look at some of the other... Um, you know, Millard Erickson, for example, in his Christian theology, breaks it into two parts, what God is like and what God does. Okay? Well, it's simple. What, how could we describe God and then how does he act? So, in, in the section on what God is like, he talks about the greatness of God and the goodness of God, his moral qualities. Also, God's nearness and his distance, the doctrines of imminence and transcendence. These are very, very important things. The, the fact that God is... For in Him we live and move and have our being. That's a sense of the imminence of God. God is here. He's right here. The greatest demonstration ever of the imminence of God is the incarnation of Jesus Christ because uh, He took on uh, a human body. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling with us. Or Emmanuel, which means what? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us is a great statement of the imminence of God. But then there's transcendence of God. Like Solomon's prayer in dedicating the temple. Will God really dwell on earth? Do not, you know, do you not fill heaven and earth? Heaven, he says, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built? And so that's a sense of the awesome transcendence of God. And the Bible teaches both. He's right here, right now with us. And yet he is so far above us that we will never be able to attain to him. He is high and lifted up. Does the Bible teach both of those things? It does, and you, and you run into problems when you let go of one to grab the other. We need to hold them both somehow. We'll talk about that in its proper place. But this is Erickson's outline, and then, of course, the Trinity. And we have to talk about the Trinity. It's so very important. And then what God does, God's plan, is originating work in creation, is continuing work in providence, evil in God's world, a special problem. It is a problem, isn't it? I mean, anybody who believes in an omnipotent you know, God who is good and all that has to deal with the so-called problem of evil. You know, uh, 911 is not the first time that we've wrestled with this. Not at all. This has been a problem all along, hasn't it? It's something that we have to wrestle with. God's special angels. angels. So those are the things that he does. Louis Burkhoff, the next page, in his systematic theology, breaks it into two basic categories. Again, the being of God and the works of God. So Erickson basically follows him. Burkhoff came first. What kind of God is he and what does he do? So that's a good way to break apart your own worship time. Praise God for who he is first. Just praise him for the God that you know him to be. What is his nature? Um, and then praise God for the works that he's done. Think about how God has worked. It's an incredible thing, the structure of salvation that's brought you to eternal life. It's not just something he thought up quickly or you know, around the bend, but from before the foundation of the world, he had this plan. And you're, an, you're a part of it, and God has worked to bring you to salvation. It's an incredible thing. And I like to sometimes just trace my you know, let my mind trace out from creation through, you know, Noah and the flood and through the call of Abraham and just right on through what you know about redemption history to realize all the work God's done to get me saved. Not just me, but all my brothers and sisters in Christ and the work that's yet to be done. And he'll finish it too, won't he? He's going to finish this work. That's an exciting thing. So the being of God and the works of God. Now, John Calvin in his Institutes of Christian Religion, he was hiding in the south of France, 1535, at the tender age of 26. Incredible, and began his fir the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is an incredible statement. Age 26, he wrote this. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. That's incredible, isn't it? What a, what a perceptive statement. And we are zeroing in on the knowledge of God, and I think we cannot really know ourselves if we don't know God. And actually, you can't know our, we can't know ourselves unless God tells us who we are, right? Because we're such self-deceived people. He's got to come and tell us the truth. He divided his work into two categories, the knowledge of God the Creator and the knowledge of God the Redeemer. Okay, that's big picture overview. Any questions about that, the doctrine of God? There's a lot of ground to cover, isn't there? But what an incredible study. What an incredible thing. Well, let's look at the first two that Grudem does, specifically the doctrine of God and the existence of God. How do we know that God exists? He gives us an explanation, a scriptural basis. First, two great categories of evidence for the existence of God. First, internal evidence. And second, external evidence. So what do we mean by internal evidence? What does that mean? Internal in what way? Within. 
within us. There's evidence within us of the existence of God. And we're going to talk about that. Internal to us. Okay, external means what? Well, outside of us. Outside of us, okay? Well, internal to us would be the fact that each person, and I mean all over the world, every person on the face of the earth has an innate sense of the existence of God. The Bible teaches that. And we touched on this you know, before, but it's worth repeating, and it's very, very important to understand this. Every single person on the face of the earth has an internal witness to the existence of God. Okay? There is also external evidence, which breaks into two categories, namely the physical creation and special revelation, general and special revelation. So these two break into two categories, what we call general revelation, and we've got special revelation. And these break into two categories also. That would be scripture and what else? Jesus, our Savior, right? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. So that's how God revealed. Now, what does this word revelation mean? What, is, what does that mean? Revelation. I kind of covered this already a little bit, but let's talk about it. What does it mean? To, to, yeah, to reveal. Okay. Well, actually, it's interesting. To reveal something, the V-E-L is related to the English word for veil. Okay. So, it means to pull a veil back away from something. To expose it, right. This would be related to what book of the Bible? Revelation. Revelation, right. Which in the Greek is apocalypse, apocalypsis, Apo is from, and this is the same word for veil. It's an unveiling. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the first line in the book of Revelation. He's revealing Christ. Well, basically, what does that imply, though, about God? What does that teach you right off the start about God? He must reveal himself. We're going to talk about that more, but you will not know him if he doesn't choose that you know him. If he does not reveal himself, you will never know him. And you can only know as much as he reveals. That's just the way it is. You cannot, you cannot know him of yourself. You can't figure him out. He must reveal himself to you. He must, and he does. He reveals himself to us, and that's a wonderful thing. All right, but we must know God by his revelation. And so the existence of God, therefore, must be revealed. Do you understand that? It must be revealed. And that is especially true in our sin-cursed nature. We're going to talk more about that, but it's true in an absolute sense. He must reveal himself through what he's made, through creation. If we were sinless, we would see him very purely and clearly in creation. But we're not sinless, and so we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We'll talk about that. But he must reveal himself, and specifically that he exists. Now let's talk about the first one, the internal evidence. Namely, humanity's internal, internal sense of God. Humanity's internal sense. Now this is worldwide, throughout history, that people have this. People are naturally very religious. Are they not? Look at the uh, quote there in Acts. Paul is walking through Athens and he goes up to the Areopagus to, to debate with those uh, philosophers. Talks to them. And then uh, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Do you see that? Is that unique to Athens? Or is that a worldwide phenomenon? Well, it is a worldwide phenomenon. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. Isn't that wonderful? Paul is so bold, especially since they didn't think he could shine their shoes. They were so arrogant to him. You know, they said... At the end, they said, what is this babbler trying to say? They called him a babbler, a seed picker, you know, just kind of like a part-time amateur philosopher. These guys were big time. This was, this was Athens. This was the center of Greek wisdom. And this guy's coming to preach about God who they do not know. But Paul is saying, I see that you're religious. And uh, cultural anthropologists will confirm this. They will tell you all over the world you're going to find religion. You're going to find a seeking after God. Now, is that true of 
you know, university-trained people and secularized Western nations, are they religious too? Well, tell you what, why don't you drive with one of them and have them hit a patch of ice and head toward a tree? And you'll see them, all humor aside, become incredibly religious, instantaneously religious. Help me, Jesus! Something like that. Now, I'm not really sure what name of God they're going to call out, but they're going to call out for some deity, something outside themselves to rescue them. There's, they're innately religious. There's a crying out after spiritual things. And so America, in its secular, secularizing trend, it will not last. Eventually, it's going to turn and embrace some spiritual reality. Same is true of communist nations. I mean, ultimately, people are going to worship something outside themselves. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the world stands outside of us and tells us we're small. The heavens, you look up at the stars. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you created, what, what thought hits David at that moment? What is man? We're nothing. You stand at the Grand Canyon and say, boy, I'm something, aren't I? Well, aren't I something? Is that what you feel when you're in front of the Grand Canyon or some lofty mountain range or something like that? No, you feel I'm nothing. I can't imagine that you would even... Even talk to me, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, there, there would be a difference between being religious and thinking there is something out there besides me. So when you write an internal sense of God, mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, that knowledge is expressed, is right. that of the God or is that something more nebulous? Romans 1 says it's of the true God and they suppress it and pervert it and make idols. So it starts as the true God. Now, there's a question about interpreting Romans. Are we talking about way, way back in the history of the human race after Adam? Or are we talking every single solitary human being and their own experience? But I believe ultimately it's speaking of every single solitary human being that they do in fact suppress the true knowledge of God. And then their religion, the religious side of them, is idolatrous. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. We'll look at Romans 1. Obviously, we're dancing around it, but Romans 1 is the key text for all of these thoughts. Well, let's, let's look at it, actually. Why don't you turn to Romans chapter 1 and look at it. I guess the best thing to do is just read through it. We're trying to do it as a systematic theologian would in a kind of a logical order, but it's really good to do it as a New Testament scholar or an exegete would and just take it in the order Paul gives us as well. Romans chapter 1, Paul says in verse 18, beginning at verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Just stop there for a second. That right there is the exchange, isn't it? The great exchange. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You see that? So they start with the true knowledge of God, but they don't end up there. They end up with a false knowledge, a perverted knowledge of, of God. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires, desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, there's that exchange again. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised on men. Now, also go down to verse 28. We could keep reading, but I'm trying to zero in on the knowledge aspects. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is incredibly deep. Look at the listing that I've given you there on the page about what human beings know. Verse 19, it says, what may be known about God is plain to them. Interesting phrase, by the way. There are some things that may be known about God and some things that may not be known about God. He's not bringing out his 
all of his wares. You know what I'm saying? There are some things he will never tell you about himself. He will not reveal. But there are many things he does. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. Deuteronomy 32. And so he reveals himself. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Isn't that a remarkable statement? This is not complex. It doesn't take a super genius to, to know that God is big and powerful by looking at mountain ranges and stars. You see what I'm saying? It is a plain revelation. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Uh, verse 21, for although they knew God, you see that? Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Doesn't that imply play they had the truth of God? They exchanged it for a lie. Verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And then look at verse 32. Very strikingly, it says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they continue to do them. So they know a lot of things. They know God. They know his truth. They know his nature. They know judgment and death. They, they, they understand righteousness. And yet they do what with all this knowledge? What do they do with it? Well, they, they exchange it or at the very beginning they suppress it in righteousness. They stomp it and hold it down. It's like some hideous green monster coming up out of the sewer system. They, they just cannot deal with the truth of God. They want to suppress it. They stomp it down. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.11 is an interesting verse. It says, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. So he's got, there's a sense of eternity in our hearts, isn't there? A sense of, of the eternal, of eternal life, and perhaps also of eternal death. A sense of God and his eternity. And, you know, the, the, the thing is, you see this in popular culture as well. You know, all these love songs, they always sing about a love that will last how long? Forever. There's a sense of a wanting of a relationship that will last forever. We want that. And we've got eternity in our hearts. Now, Don Richardson wrote a fa fascinating book entitled Eternity in Their Hearts. Bob, have you ever read that one? It's a great book. What's the basic premise of Eternity in Their Hearts? Well, there's an, in any culture, there's some kind of story of the truth of a, a real one true God. And so, I mean, it's not just this, but this particular culture he was in, in Erie and Jaya, but they're all over the world. Right, and he calls and them... Yeah, he calls them redemptive analogies and that God in his sovereign control over the cultures and history of each tribe and language and people and nation has left evidences of his nature within their culture. And so all you have to do as a missionary is go and find out what those evidences are and they're bridges to help you explain the gospel. Okay, and it's an amazing thing and you have to read the book to see how detailed some of these are. But at any rate, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. But the problem is human beings suppress this knowledge. <laughs> Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. What does that mean he says it in his heart? He's not out, he's not out teaching it as a professor at a university. Well, that'll come later. No, it's within his self, his inner self, he's saying it. He's saying it to himself that there is no God. You say it enough, you might believe it. You know, And could it be that at some point God will give you over to that? He'll give you over to truly believe in the fiber of your being that there is truly no God. He'll give you over to that darkness. But what does the Bible call you? <laughs> a fool. I saw a bumper sticker re related here. National Atheist Day, April 1st, which is April <laughs> Fool's Day, you see. So they have their own day. A little bit sharp. You have to know the Bible in order to, you know. Don't even know you were stung on that one, but uh, at any rate. Okay, so we've got Romans 1, 18 through 23 um, written out there. I'd forgotten that. We just read it through. I remember when I preached on Romans 1, I came across some incredible statements like this guy Richard Dawkins, called an arch-Darwinian, <laughs> who says, listen to this, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. <laughs> Don't you just love that quote? Is that not a great, great evidence of the suppression of truth and unrighteousness? Every day you've got to trudge off to the laboratory and suppress the truth that you're seeing. Every day as you're studying microbiology and there's just unbelievable evidence of the creativity and power and wisdom of God. Every day. See right here. Go ahead. Come on through. Um, and so they've got to suppress this truth. Or Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA. DNA. I mean, the mo one of the most complex things that God made with clear purpose. I mean, if you're ever going to find purpose, it's in the cell and in the DNA, right? No. 
he says biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved. Why do you have to work so hard to keep that in your mind? Because all the evidence is to the contrary. That's why I just don't think that it's true science what they're doing. I just don't think it's true science because they're having to fight the evidence all the time. Fight it all the time. These are not just any scientists, by the way. I mean, these are some of the best. Some of the, I mean, he won the Nobel Prize for his discovery in the DNA. But he's got to fight this, doesn't he? That's unbelievable. It's kind of like driving with the front end, you know, aligns, you know, misalign. You're constantly having to pull it, pull it all the time. You see, he's fighting that all the time. It's pulling toward God, but he won't give in. He won't yield. So he suppresses the truth. By the way, the most horrible thing that God can ever do to you is give you over to your sin. Most horrible thing. Fine. Do it. And the most delightful thing he can do is prevent you from doing what you want to do. That's called salvation. <laughs> you want to go to hell. And you say, no, I don't. Yes, you do. Because you don't want God in your natural state. And God wouldn't let you not want him anymore. He healed you from that. And so that's called salvation. That's another talk for another day. All I'm saying is that that phrase is terrifying. God gave them over. That's a terrifying thing to the hardening of their hearts. Okay. External evidence. Scripture testifies to the worldwide general revelation in creation. We just read about it. Calvin called creation the theater of God's glory. Isn't that beautiful? What a, what a great expression. The theater of God's glory. Isaiah 6.3, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We've talked about this so many times, especially in conjunction with Habakkuk 2.14, which says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth is already filled with his glory, but it is not filled with the knowledge of his glory. That was our special job, wasn't it? We were created as sentient or knowing beings. We we're supposed to be able to look at a mountain and say, God made that. The iguana isn't going to do it. The stream and the wind isn't going to do it. The ape, Mr. Darwin, is not going to do it. Okay? We are to look at the mountain or the river or the ape and say, God made it. I remember one quote, Charles Goodyear, you know Goodyear, rubber? He said, how can anyone study rubber and not worship God? Rubber? He had worship experiences while he worked with rubber. You know? That's what Goodyear said. I mean, it's just an incredible thing to him. Rubber. Well, it is an incredible thing. God made it. But rubber is just one of many things that God's made. So the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The only thing that heals our darkened knowledge is what? Well, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So wherever the gospel is preached, the true knowledge of the glory of God comes. Right? We, see, we see it and we, we know that it's God. Psalm 19 speaks of this external evidence, the worldwide revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Look at this. This is amazing. Oh, my goodness. I lost your eraser. Well, it must be at home. Sorry. I'll get it back, I promise. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Declare and proclaim. What does that tell you? How about the communication? Is it hidden? Is it quiet? Is it whispered? It is shouted. What do the heavens scream? What do they proclaim? The glory of God. Psalm 8 says, you have set your glory above the heavens, right? And so there it is. It just proclaims God is magnificent. God is glorious. God is powerful. All right? Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge right? Day after day, day and night. What do we get at day? Well, you get the sun. What do you get at night? Moon and the stars. God set them up in Genesis 1 as a testimony to his faithfulness and to his power, right? There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Everybody on the face of the earth gets it. Everybody. We all get this. Acts 14, 16 and 17, again, Paul preaching. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. That is what God does for everybody. You see that? And he leaves himself as a testimony. What does that mean? He has not left himself without a testimony. What does that mean? It's a witness to what? His, his existence and his attributes. That he's there and that he's good and powerful and other things, right? So he's not left himself without witness. Now, just a minute. Let's, let's talk for a minute about the question, what about those who haven't heard the gospel? 
All right, this comes out so frequently, and it could come up in another topic, but we're talking so strongly about innate knowledge. We have found that people have innate and external evidence for the existence of God, right? And so it says in, in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness and men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Okay? People say it is wrong for God to send anyone to hell simply because they haven't heard the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Are people sent to hell because they have not heard the gospel? What sends them to hell, Jim? Sin. Okay? The sin that was listed at the end of Romans 1. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They disobey their parents. All that list of sinfulness. Paul goes on and on. It's almost nauseating to read it. Romans 1, 30, 31. He just lists all of these descriptors. That's what sends them to hell. That stuff. And they do it in the face of a creator God who is good to them every day of their lives. Right in his, in his face. So they do not get sent to hell for not having heard the gospel. Do you understand that? That is not what sends people to hell. Yes? Isn't Yeah, chapter 2. But do they? He says their conscience is alternately accusing and defending them. Okay, what are you going to do when your conscience accuses you? Uh-oh, no Savior. One sin, that's all it takes, just one time. And who in the world does not have a violated conscience? Everybody violates their conscience. We all do, do things wrong, contrary. You know, you talk to unbelievers, you talk to them and you say, you know, churches are full of hypocrites. So I tell you what, I want you to give me ten good rules to live by interpersonal rules, office rules, how to deal with, your, with neighbors or with relatives. Write them down for me. And then observe and see whether you keep them over the next year. Just write them down and see. And a hypocrite is somebody who espouses a system of morality as good and right and then, what, doesn't keep it, right? They preach the, the standard but don't live up to it. Okay? If that's the case, how many people on the face of the earth are hypocrites? Every single solitary human being. And I can't think of a better church for or a better place for a hypocrite to go than into church where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. I want hypocrites in our church as long as they're getting healed from it gradually, you know? <laughs> Generally repenting from not living up to that standard. That's called sanctification. It cannot happen until you come to faith in Christ, but that's another day. But at any rate, you're right, Tanya. Everybody's got an internal sense of right and wrong, um, but they don't live up to it. Very good. All right. Um, scri scripture itself reveals God, and we have already discussed that at length, have we not? So I'm not going to go into that. All right? That is revelation. All right. Now, there are four traditional proofs for the existence of God. Wayne Grudem says these proofs are attempts to analyze the evidence in creation for the existence of God in order to prove it, it is not irrational to believe in God. You're not cutting off your brain to believe in God. There, there's, there's reason. It's a reasonable thing to believe in God. Frankly, that's all these things can do. They are limited, these proofs of the existence of God. The first is the cosmological argument. Think of the word cause, right? What it basically argues is that everything in the universe has a cause. Thus, the universe itself must have a cause, and the cause of the entire universe can only be God. That's how that argument works. The second argument is like it, actually very similar, and some people consider it a subset of the first, the teleological argument from the Greek word telos, meaning end or purpose. Everything has a purpose. That's the idea. That the universe gives immense evidence of harmony, order, and design. As, you know, Mr. Dawkins and Mr. Crick will tell you from their work in the laboratory. There's immense evidence of design, isn't there? Design gives evidence of intelligent purpose and therefore of a creator an intelligent and purposeful God who created it to function this way. This is the old, you know, wristwatch or stopwatch analogy where you're walking into the woods and you find, you know, a watch and you pick it up and assume that there must be a creator because of the complexity 
of the watch. Okay, we would never imagine, you know, if you were on a d- desert island, for example, how much order would it take to convince you there was another person on that island? Just a, a campfire, right? Campfire or or a bunch of firewood stacked up would do it, right? Well, our standards are pretty low. You'd immediately become terrorized. Is he a headhunter, a cannibal, you know? But I'm telling you right now, your heart's going to testify immediately that there's order and therefore there must be a person behind the order, right? Well, that's low standard. What about the eyeball or the liver or the brain or the hand? What about the entire ecosystem that supports life? Immense evidence of order. And yet we can suppress the truth that there's no creator. That's so sad, isn't it? that we could look at all of this evidence and think there's no creator. But teleological argument. The ontological argument, in my opinion, is the weirdest of the four. It works like this. Imagine a being. This is how it works. You th- close your eyes and think. Imagine a being greater than which nothing can be imagined. So you're going to take a being and you're going to push him right up to infinity in every area. Okay? He is God. If, if you're going to stop short, then he's not God yet, if you can speak like that. So he's going to be infinite in everything, infinite in goodness, infinite in knowledge, infinite in power, infinite in in all of these things, right? Well, we must then go on to the next step and say, is not a being like that who's imaginary inferior to a being like that who really exists, right? And so therefore we have to push existence to its logical conclusion, therefore he exists. You see how it works? You say, well, I'm totally confused. All right, but they're saying, okay, think of a being, all right, because you can imagine him and uh, whatever he's got, he must also exist because if he doesn't exist, that's lower or a lesser being. Yes? I think the presupposition to this uh, philosophy is the And that's how it works. Um, the fourth argument is the moral argument, the innate sense of morality. This is a very, very strong argument. As a matter of fact, it's so strong that Immanuel Kant dispensed with the first three brilliantly, shredded them, but stumbled on this one. Okay, Because we cannot live without an innate sense of morality. Everybody in the world has a sense of what's right and wrong and they want to do what's right, and they don't want to do what's wrong. Not only for themselves, that's conscience, but the judicial instinct external. Hey, what you did was wrong. You see? There's a sense of judging wickedness outside of us. You can't live without it, actually. It begins from a man's sense of right and wrong and the need for justice to be done and argues that there must be a God who is a source of right and wrong who will someday mete out justice to all people. Now, I put a note here, just a thought I had. Atheistic evolutionists are sometimes also conservationists who lobby and persuade people that it is, hear this word, wrong to kill bearded seals or wear fur coats. Remember the slogan, fur shame? Remember that? Shame is an intensely moral condition, is it not? If there is no God, then why is it shameful to kill animals and put their fur around our bodies? Answer me that one. Because if there's no God, there can be no right and wrong. Could it be that I just have an evolutionary urge to kill other animals to extinction? I actually like to pursue the bald eagle until it's extinct. It's part of my evolutionary nature. Well, that's wrong. It's what? It's just who I am. Well, the fact of the matter is they are actually arguing out of the echoes of the image of God and that we were created to be caretakers of this physical universe. And as a result, we shouldn't pursue beasts to their extinction. We should nurture and care for them. Right, But I'm saying atheistic evolutionists should not be conservationists. They really shouldn't. They shouldn't picket. They shouldn't be tree huggers. They shouldn't do any of those things. They should just live and let live because there is no absolute standard of right and wrong. All right? Now, all of these arguments, the cosmological, teleological, ontological, and moral arguments are true, aren't they? Is there a creator of everything in the universe? Is there a purpose behind everything in the universe? Is there a being greater than which does not exist? Yes. And does he exist? He really does. And is he the standard of morality, of right and wrong? Yes. But the problem with these arguments is that they are not uh, beyond being contradicted. Immanuel Kant proved it. If you take people that start with, with a wrong presupposition, then as a result, you're going to come up with different things. Roger Nicole put it this way. God has not left sufficient evidence for his existence so that belief in his existence is logically inescapable. 
but simply enough that unbelief is morally inexcusable. Do you see the difference? He's not put you in a box logically and say, you must believe in me. You have no choice. He's left the ability to get out of it. Kant will help you, all right? But it is still morally inexcusable to look at all of this and say there's no God. Yes? But you can even That is absolutely true. That's right. And so he, I mean, he... Well, he knows the truth of it now, doesn't he? Yeah. So, so there are some things you can know. He knows them very well now. Okay. Um, only God can overcome the human suppression of truth. Do you hear that? Only God can overcome this. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the light of the gospel of the, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God must, in effect, create something new in your soul or you will not be saved. That's why Paul harkens back to the creation language. Let there be light. That's what he's got to do inside you. He's got to do that in your heart or you will not be saved. And so he speaks the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ into you. That's called regeneration. Regenesis, a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. That's what he does. He creates you anew. It's called being born again. He speaks into you. It is passive. It's something God does to you. Because you didn't get born the first time, and so you didn't get born again the second time. It's something he does to you. It's a new creation. It's a beautiful thing. It's creation. Now, it can only happen, praise God, it can only happen from the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what does it. It's the preaching of the gospel. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. God's power through the preached word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what does it. All right, that's the first topic, and that is the doctrine of God, the existence of God, arguments for the existence of God. Let's look at the second one, the knowability of God. Can we really know God? Now, I'm going to forget if I don't do this now. Please, next week, there is no Acts. Okay, There's not, th we're not doing this next week. There is a church conference. All of you who are church members, please come. It's a very important church conference. And please be praying between now and next Wednesday night. It's going to be at 6.30. If you'd like to pray with us, we'll be here uh, probably in this room for prayer at 6 o'clock. Um, but uh, for those of you that are not church members, um, there is no Acts next week. But there is a church conference. And, and if you are a, a church member, really, I would, I would think you'd want that to be a top priority to be here. Part of what it means to be a church member is to be at important meetings like this. So please come. Okay? End of commercial or whatever. The knowability no of God. Can we really know God and how much of God can we know? We've already talked about the first aspect of, the, of this, and that is the, necess the necessity of God to reveal himself to us. General revelation we've already talked about, and I'm not going to read these verses again. So it is true that in general God must reveal himself, and he does through physical creation. But then personal revelation, personal revelation comes. Listen to this verse. Jesus said, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. What an interesting statement. What does it mean, no one knows the Son except the Father? Now, Jesus said it, so it's true. That's a poser, isn't it? What does that mean, no one knows the Son? except the Father. What's that? The, the Father and the Son are, are one. Okay. They have a knowledge about each other that no one else does. Think of it that way. Bob, what were you going to say? Comprehensive. Nobody knows me except the Father. Nobody. And no one knows, look at the second half, no one knows the Father except the Son and, aren't you glad there's an and in there? And who? Those people to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Wow. That sounds kind of exclusive. I didn't write it. It's in there. Jesus has the power to reveal the Father. And to whom does He reveal the Father? To those whom He chooses to reveal. And so basically, you cannot know the Father unless Jesus chooses to reveal him to you. Do you understand that? You will never know him unless Jesus reveals him to you. Isn't that what the verse is saying? 
You must know him through Jesus. There's no other way. Now, God lives in unapproachable light, the Bible says. You know that song, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise? What's the next part? In light, inaccessible. Stop there for a minute. What does that mean, in light, he's inaccessible? Well, you can't get to him through light. Light doesn't lead you to God. Light is created by God as a form of self-revelation, but when you get to the end of the rainbow, you're not going to find God there. In light, he's inaccessible. He's hid from our eyes. All praise we would render, it says at the very end, O help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. We live by faith, not by what? Sight. You're not going to see God. No one has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, that's Jesus, he has revealed him. He's made him known. You see what I'm saying? You can't see God. You never will see him that way. He doesn't reveal himself because his, in, his essential nature is not made up of, I don't know, photons or something like that. He, 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 that's not how you know God. He must reveal himself spiritually to you. Okay? Listen to this. Psalm 104, verse 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praises the holy name. All right. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God. You are very great. And then he says this. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. So light is like a cloak that he wears, but it's not him. You see what I'm saying? He reveals himself that way, but, but it's not him. I'm talking about physical light that you see. Let there be light. The first thing that he says, let there be light. Okay, First uh, Timothy 6, 15 and 16. God is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. So here's this light that I guess in this sense is so brilliant and it would kill you to get even close. And you cannot see him, whom no one has seen or can see. You cannot see him. Do you see what I'm, I'm getting at? And so, you know, in Isaiah 6, the angels have six wings, remember? With six wings they did what? With two wings they did what? They covered their faces. It's just too bright. These are angels, by the way. That if an angel were here, it would be emanating out the glory of the Lord, right? But God's glory is so bright, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they're flying. So God lives in unapproachable light. And a key part of that, therefore, is that man cannot figure God out by himself. The key text on this is 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 21. I'm sorry, that should be small h. Thank you. Good point. One of the problems you get into with capitalize him. Um, yeah, small h. Man cannot figure God out alone without help. Let's put it that way. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 19-21. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Who says that? God does. What is he promising to do in that verse? He's... He's going to frustrate human intelligence. He's going to frustrate human will. He's going to frustrate human inquiries and libraries and philosophies and wisdom. He's going to frustrate them. All right? Where is the wise man, he says? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. For since, listen to this, this is so powerful. For since in the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not know him. Stop there. Look at the first phrase, for since in the wisdom of God. In other words, it was wise of God to make sure the world couldn't figure him out. That's about what it's saying. In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. You see what I'm talking about? So it was wisdom from God for him to frustrate human wisdom. Why? Because it humbles us, doesn't it? that we can't figure him out on our own. It humbles us. It makes us become spiritual beggars. It makes us come to him and say, teach me who you are. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Does that include the Greek philosophers like Plato and all that who worked so hard and had these pure discussions of God? Does it include them? I think it especially includes them. He was speaking to Greeks. They never figured him out. They got close about some things, but they never figured him out. In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, or some translations say the foolishness of preaching, to save those who believe. He's saying 
My foolish way is I'm going to preach a dead Jewish carpenter on a wooden cross, blood pouring out everywhere, and you're going to stumble over it unless I regenerate you. (laughs) You're going to be frustrated by that message. It's going to seem ridiculous to you and offensive and ugly and perverted, really. And doesn't it say in Isaiah 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There's nothing pretty about a man dead on a cross. He did it that way, didn't he? He did it on purpose. So that the only people who can see beauty in that are Christians. We look at that and they say, that is the glory of God. That's my salvation there. That's the wrath of God poured out on somebody in my place. That's love there. That's power. That's fulfilled prophecy there. Christians can see it. Unbelievers will never see it. They stumble over it. So in the wisdom of God, he did it his way. He did it his own way. God was pleased. and It pleases God to save people this way, doesn't it? It just brings him glory to save people with this message. God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And therefore, we can never fully understand God. There was Tanya, did you have something you wanted to say? Okay, we can never fully understand God. God is incomprehensible. What does that mean? We can't fully understand him. Let's put it this way. Think if your mind, your imagination somehow had arms, you would not be able to reach around God. That's the point. You'll run out of arm. (laughs) There's more God than you have arm. And that's true in heaven too. Even there, you're a limited being, aren't you? You'll have pure and perfect moral knowledge of God, but you will not comprehend him. You'll not take him into yourself totally. Okay? Scripture testifies to this. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. You can't measure it. I like the word fathom in the NIV. It means to plumb the depths with a weighted line until we reach bottom. Number one, there is no bottom. And number two, you don't have enough line. (laughs) Okay? So that's about what we're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a new thought. Yeah, for me, it's a new thought within the last few years that we will not, even in heaven, have a perfect, complete knowledge of God. Perfect, yes, but not complete. Because that makes heaven static, doesn't it? You know, it's like, okay, I've got God, now what do we do? Well, you're never going to get God. You'll be learning Him the rest of your existence. Yeah, Tom. You lost me. <laughs> no. He's you an lost infinite me. being with infinite knowledge. Yeah. So if he knows himself completely, mm-hmm. then is he infinite because he knows himself? Yes, he's infinite. And yes, he knows himself completely. That's the only thing I can do to answer your question. He knows himself. He's not confused about himself. He knows himself. It's a good question, but I, I it's hard to hard to answer. <laughs> Psalm 147, verse 5 says, great, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Listen to this one, Psalm 139. I've reviewed this and gone over it again and again. It's an amazing, amazing thing. You'll never finish Psalm 139, by the way. He says, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. David says, I can't get it. I don't get it. I don't know how you know all my words before I say them. That's, that's too hard for me to figure out. And thus, it says also in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. By the way, I love how Paul begins in Romans 11:33 with this word, oh. In the Greek, it's just an omega. That's all it is. Oh. It's an emotional word, isn't it? Paul gets to the end of 11 chapters of theology that, again, you'd be the rest of your life trying to figure out. And he looks at what he's written and he says, Oh, <laughs> oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Thus, we will never know too much about God you never say, I got all of God I need to know. you never like that. 
And we should never stop growing in knowledge. Colossians 1.10 says, We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Listen, growing in the knowledge of God. You should be doing that the rest of your life. Rest of your life. Philippians 3.10, what does Paul say? I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. That's the Apostle Paul, by the way, the one who wrote Romans. What does he say? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's what I want. He says, I want to know Christ. And therefore, heaven will not be boring or static, rather a place of constant discovery about God. Even with eternity of time, we will never exhaust all there is to know about God. At the end of Psalm 139, David said, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Go to a beach sometime and scoop up one handful of sand and you'll know what David's talking about. His thoughts outnumber the grains of sand. The rest of eternity would not be enough to plumb the depths of all of God's thoughts. And yet, for all of that, we can know God truly. We can acquire true knowledge of God. We can't acquire comprehensive knowledge of God but we can acquire true knowledge of God. We can say, for example, from Scripture that God is light. That's moral purity, by the way. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. It's speaking of His perfection morally. We can also say God is love. We can say God is spirit. We can say God is compassionate and gracious. We can make many God is statements, can't we? Because of Scripture. Therefore, we can know some things. Even more, even better, it is God himself that we know, not just a bunch of stuff you could answer on the systematic test that's going to be at the end of this ACT seminar. So in, in December, you're going to be tested on all this, and you'll need a passing grade in order to get out of the room. But, um, you know, God, it's better than that. It's not a bunch of facts. It is a, it's a person that we know. We're created in his image so we can have a relationship with him. We can have a relationship Knowing God is the essence of eternal life and it is therefore the most precious thing that we can possess is knowledge of God. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. By the way, the highest example of God's kindness, justice, and righteousness ever in history is what? The cross of Jesus Christ. You want to understand God? Understand the cross. Now, this is eternal life, said Jesus, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But a perfect knowledge of God is promised in heaven. Hebrews 8, this is the new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, I believe this next one is going to be fulfilled in heaven. It can only be in heaven. You realize that? No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's got to be heaven because on earth God has appointed some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And Paul says of the gospel, he was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. We teach the gospel. But in heaven we don't need it anymore. And why? Because we will see his face. You don't need a human teacher in heaven anymore. You will see him directly, face to face. And so it ends in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. By the way, these spiritual gifts are paths or avenues of God's revelation of himself, right? But there'll come a time you don't need them anymore. You don't need prophecies, tongues, knowledge. You don't need any of those things. You'll have God. And you don't need the gifts anymore. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Paul's speaking of our present experience of God through the childish means of spiritual gifts. Do you understand that? There'll come a day that we'll grow up into maturity and we'll not need spiritual gifts anymore. That's what he's talking about, spiritual gifts. There's come a time you don't need them anymore. When I was a child, I talked like, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Perfect but not exhaustive knowledge. We will be constantly learning God forever in heaven. Any questions about this?
Does this make you thirsty to be in heaven tonight? See him face to face? Yeah. Fully, well, I guess perfectly, moral, moral perfection. I don't think comprehensive. You know, I had to wrestle with that, the word fully. Uh, I don't think there's ever going to come a time you'll get to 100% and there's nothing beyond it. I just don't think so. So I think we have to understand I shall know fully means a full personal knowledge, much like a marriage. There's a complete openness, a covenant love there that's fully there. There's nothing held back, I think is the way to do it. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to study you tonight. And uh, your goodness and mercy is overwhelming to me and to my brothers and sisters here. We're grateful that, that you have revealed yourself to us. And, and it's not out of, out of context, Lord. It's in the context of our wickedness and our rebellion and our turning away from you and choosing other things, created things, rather than you, as though that was going to bring us happiness. We've done that most of our lives, and yet you know that you are best for us, and you will not give us over to our sin, but rather you will turn us back to us, to yourself. You'll, you'll, you'll take our face and, and, and turn it so that we're looking at you face to face, and we will see you perfectly, and all these idols will disappear forever. We look forward to that, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to not grow weary in doing good, but to keep studying to know you and also to make you known to those who are still dead in transgression and sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.